Okay, welcome everyone. Uh, my name is Kira Andrewski and I have with me Olivia DeRoche. And we are right now in our episode one of the Ryerson Research Podcast presents a T-Dot Resto Recovery. We're very excited to do this first episode with you all. Um, we're going to be talking a little bit of about our kind of an introduction to our research and kind of the beginning of our data collection. But first off, I'd like to start this little session off with a land acknowledgement. And I'm in Vancouver right now, so I'd like to acknowledge that we are on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh Nations. Awesome. And I am in Toronto at the moment. And the City of Toronto acknowledges that we are on the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit and Maiti peoples. The city also acknowledges that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13, signed with the Mississaugas of the Credit and the William Treaties, signed with multiple Mississaugas and Chippewa bands. These acknowledgements are a reminder of the discriminatory, racist, and colonial practices that have had a lasting legacy and continue to create barriers for Indigenous peoples and communities in our cities and across Turtle Island. So our research question for our group was, how have restaurants in culturally significant neighborhoods been affected by COVID-19? Our hypothesis Restaurants within these culturally significant neighborhoods have seriously suffered due to the effects of COVID-19 and the related government policy implementation. So our related questions to this main kind of research topic that we've picked are what do we think the suffering looks like? What have been the financial effects? But really how has it affected the people living in these neighborhoods and what will it look like for the future of Toronto? What are our neighborhoods without our central community hubs, restaurants? What are the government policies that have been put in place to help these establishments? What is it lacking? What do COVID accommodations look like? What's the e-commerce game look like for restaurants? Is it beneficial or detrimental? So we wanna talk about kind of why we care about this uh, because we do quite, care quite a bit. Um, I do so care quite a bit. Yeah, we care. I mean, we're eaters. We eat. <laughs> we eat. I actually work in the restaurant industry. I've been in the restaurant industry now for a couple of years. It's definitely a near and dear topic to my heart. Yeah, you've got I'm the a slave to it. You've got yeah. the inside scoop on the changes. I hope I bring it to the table today. <laughs> Get it? The table? <laughs> the dining table. Okay. Our first episode right now, we're going to be talking about Little Italy, uh, Chinatown, and Little Jamaica. Yes, ma'am. And neighborhoods like Little Jamaica haven't even been properly recognized by the city. You'll Since hear more about this from me very soon. I'm very upset about this issue. Very, very cute history lesson about it. So we yeah. are cool with the knowledge. Since the 1960s, Little Jamaica has been one of the biggest producing centers of reggae music outside of Jamaica. It's a serious cultural hub, which is filled with Jamaican jerk chicken shops, Black-owned beauty salons and other Black-owned businesses is only listed as the international market. I know. That's frustrating. So why does that matter and why does that tie in what we're talking about? Neighborhoods where racialized groups have found their own communities have long been abandoned and pushed aside by our municipal governments and the COVID-19 pandemic has made this more clear than ever. 
we decided to focus on restaurants because they're community centers. Eating and cooking is a social and cultural affair very often, and for many, it's a passion and a livelihood. The COVID-19 pandemic has had serious financial impacts in loss of revenue and customers that haven't felt so steeply since maybe the recession of 08. But it's more than a financial issue, it's a people issue. How are owners and workers surviving? And these are the things we're hoping to uncover within this research and podcast. Yeah, awesome, thank you. So a little bit of the background of the industry, because if you don't know kind of like what we're getting into, it's kind of like, once again, why do we care? So some facts about Canada's restaurant industry, which is a gorgeous, amazing, huge industry, uh, said that food service in Canada was an $89 billion industry. Specifically, the Toronto region's food and beverage sector employs more than 64,000 workers with annual wages totaling $3.2 billion, and that's coming directly from the City of Toronto website. Small businesses made up 81% of the GTA's food service industry. So most of what you're seeing on the street, of course, is not big chain restaurants like Jack Astor's. It's going to be mom and pop shops. And these are the places that we really want to look at today. And then torontorestaurants.com tells us that there are over 8,000 restaurants within the GT. According to the City of Toronto Statistics website, 1.2 million of the population of the GTA identifies as non-white or as a visible minority. So I can confidently say that the restaurant industry is integral to Toronto's greater economy and more importantly, the thousands of people that depend on their jobs within this industry. It's a multi-billion dollar industry which employs a serious percentage of the DTA's population and it's an industry that's always relied on people being in the physical restaurant, which of course, we've just seriously lost. We've just seriously lost it in the last couple of months. So that's really what we're talking about today. And then about our study design, we wanted to focus specific on a few neighborhoods within Toronto. We're doing Little Italy today, Little Jamaica, Chinatown, The Village, and Koreatown. Our study design went into online articles we looked at. We looked at news articles that were happening during all of this time. We were looking at Yelp, Google reviews, Zomato, other different review websites to see how people were talking about the restaurant and their delivery services and what the restaurant was like for pickup, delivery, all those kind of things. And then we also took photos of the restaurants and the neighborhoods pre and post COVID to kind of see what differences we were seeing on like foot traffic, street traffic, those kind of things. And then of course, as we were talking about earlier, as four students who all have experience within the hospitality industry, whether that's as a customer or as an employee, it's been interesting to utilize our own lived experiences for this research as well. I think a strength in choosing this kind of research is the, the rawness of the data that we'll be able to analyze here. And then within our data collection, uh, we did code all of our research. We were looking for a few different things that we all wanted to talk about, what we wanted to analyze. Thing Like, what does ritual look like? What does pickup look like? Whether a stronger social media presence happened um, were they doing their own delivery? Were they refusing to do delivery? Any other kind of effects? We also wanted to look at how government policies were happening. Uh, what kind of financial loans were being put out? Were people able to access them? Why, why not? Those are kind of the, the codes that we were looking for. Hope that you have a kind of a better idea of what we're about to talk about and the data collection that we're about to do. And I'm gonna give it straight back to Liv. And she's gonna tell us a little bit about a little Italy. Little Italy. Oh, Little Italy. Let's Tell me more. I don't know much. 
So a lot of um, Italian settlers, like right at the beginning of the 1950s, did establish small businesses along college. So college has been the Little Italy hub and kind of has gotten its name um, since 1950s. Um, and initially, this was a lot of bakeries, meat markets, salons, tailor shops. It was very all-encompassing. Like every kind of shop that you would see on that street was usually Italian-owned. A little village. That's today. That's a little different. Today, it's more restaurants and cafes, um, which sadly is, I think, pivoting now as we're kind of further into COVID, a year in. Not a lot of restaurants has have made it, especially small businesses in Little Italy. Um, and the saddest part is that some like landmark restaurants within Little Italy, some landmark cafes that have been there for 60 years plus, um, didn't make it through the first wave. So we're already seeing a huge shift on College Street of what Little Italy looks like. One of the restaurants that we have been to is now closing down. And one of the most famous restaurants in Little Italy is Il Gatto Nero. And they are have always been actually a huge staple of the neighborhood. And I'm gonna pull up the exact date they closed because they actually had a very beautiful goodbye to the, uh, to the neighborhood. I feel like neighborhoods in Toronto especially have really rallied around small businesses. Like people are purchasing local. Because yeah. I, I really do think the people of Toronto love their local neighborhood spots. Mm -hmm. and, um, so a lot of restaurants, on Little Italy now and a lot of small business owners have started to get very vocal with news sources about how disappointed they are in government help and support. One Do you have a number of how many Little Italy businesses have closed? It's 16 restaurants. 16 restaurants. And now we're going to hear Kira talk about the effects of COVID-19 on Little Jamaica and Chinatown. around 100,000 Jamaicans immigrated to Toronto in the 70s and 80s, mostly settling along Eglinton West and making Little Jamaica one of the largest Jamaican expatriate communities in the world. Subsequently, it turned the neighborhood and the city into a global hotbed for reggae music. I think this is a really cool fact. Toronto is the largest producer of reggae music outside of Jamaica. Horace Rose, a very cool guy in Toronto, uh, people know him as Raps in the neighborhood, and he owns a jerk chicken spot, which is known as Raps. It's one of the best, apparently, jerk chicken spots on the Strip. And he also used to run, so he makes jerk chicken now, but originally he used to run Joe Gibbs Records and was a producer in his own right, making songs with Dennis Brown, Gregory Isaacs, who are some big reggae names. And uh, his brother, Horace's brother, Michael Rose, was a lead vocalist for Grammy-winning a Jamaican reggae group, Black Ururu. And they released a song about the neighborhood called The Youth of Eglinton on their album Red in 1981. So just some, some random facts there for you. I just want some spitfire facts. Yeah. So this is all to say a serious cultural hub that should be celebrated by the city of Toronto. Big names. Cool stuff. Part of the city. So, of course, what's happening there now? The Eglinton Crosstown LRT, which is a light rail subway, was announced in 2007 and the work began in 2011. The only one that's still in process, still in process to this day, the Eglinton line. 
Um, the construction has taken a massive toll on the community. All along Eglinton West, there's large fences, there's barriers that you can't get into stores, it's hard to access stores, it's, parking is impossible, limiting foot traffic, Cafe Tio, not possible there. Cafe Tio, something that we talk about when we're talking about the pandemic is the fact that restaurants were able to put their patios out on the street. Yeah. All the construction Eglinton West seriously suffered was forgotten about. Nobody cared. There's too much construction there. There's no room on the street anyway. You couldn't put a patio out there. Metrolinx, who's the company who's building the LRT, refuses to compensate businesses for lost revenue. This is all to preface with me saying that this is a serious culture hub with a serious community, lots of amazing businesses that have all has already been suffering, has already been suffering. And now here we have the, we have the pandemic come in. So uh, some quotes here I've got. So this is from uh, Horace Rose, rap owner of Raps Restaurant, longtime community staple Jamaican cuisine. I've been on Eglinton for 43 years and it's never been this bad. I pay a hefty price, 25% on some of my delivery charges for food delivery apps. So I have to live with a serious loss of revenue. And he's also said that foot traffic, which had already been going down because of the construction before the pandemic, is now little to none. Little to none. And with bills coming in and now the additional out-of-pocket expenses thanks to the need for PPE, he's had to make some tough decisions. His revenues dropped by 50%. He's had to lay off his uh, employees. He's been putting in extra hours. He says that he used to work nine, 10 hours. Now he's working 12, 15, easy, just by himself, running this restaurant by himself. Because these shop owners are working these 12, 15 hours by themselves, they don't have time. They're already, it's already hard to keep up with taxes, already hard to keep up with rent. Like they can't, the challenge of maintaining a business without any of this capital, fighting to work those 12 hours a day, your payroll isn't kept up, big challenges, those kind of like foundations for business success, it's harder to find time to get to qualify for government aid because it's all this paperwork that you have to fill out that, the, that we don't have time for, unfortunately. And then, so something that I wanted to talk about is the BIAs that exist in all of these neighborhoods, uh, which are um, business associations, business improvement associations. Because Eglinton West is not recognized as a neighborhood, they do not have one BIA that speaks for all of these amazing Caribbean and black owned restaurants and businesses. They, have, they are in four different areas. So there's a serious fragmentation of interest and it does not adequately represent these black owned businesses. Uh, the Canadian Federation of the Independent Business revealed that only two thirds of participating restaurant in Cafe TO, this is going back to the fact that there's no street for Eglinton West restaurants to put their patios on, revealed that only two thirds of participating restaurants in Cafe TO had fully reopened in early September and only 41% were back to full staffing and only 28% reported a normal level of sales. They're only a quarter is expected to be back to normal in six months from now. So a, a little bit of bright news that's happening from COVID. I want to end off this talk about Jamaica, Little Jamaica on a bright note. Nadine Spencer, who's the president of the Black Business and Professional Association, who's currently working in Little Jamaica to aid all of these businesses, said her organization was brought in by the city to work with Little Jamaica businesses, which she says has been seriously disadvantaged by the LRT construction and COVID-19. You can see the vacancy, she said, at the area, adding that many of the businesses weren't equipped to deal with the e-commerce boom during the pandemic and couldn't access funding to help them get through the construction. Um, however, she has started an initiative where she and her business will do all of this paperwork for black owned businesses for free to help them get the financial aid from the government that they can. That's awesome.
So that's little Jamaica. So going now into Chinatown, which is a whole nother ballpark because now we're talking about the xenophobia and the xenophobia that we saw at the beginning of the pandemic, which is also something that I really wanted to talk about. So Chinatown in Toronto has a very, very long history. Um, we saw the first ever Chinese uh, business open in Toronto in 1878, and it was opened by a man named Sam Ching. Uh, and his business was the Sam Ching & Co. Chinese Laundry at 9 Adelaide Street East. Uh, and that was the first business to be recorded in the Toronto City Directory, which was a, a serious win. Going back to Chinatown in Toronto, in 1921, Toronto had the third largest Chinatown in Canada with uh, 2,000 identifying Chinese men and 115 identifying Chinese women, according to Statistics Canada. And so that's kind of just like a brief history of Chinatown. And now we go back to, let's say, even like January of this year when COVID was first coming up in the news uh, in China, in Wuhan, and we saw a serious influx of hate crimes. Originally in March, businesses were comparing this to the SARS pandemic of 2003, and all of these Chinese business owners saw this kind of similar racism then as well. And a lot of, I have the Chinatown Business Improvement Area, so that's the BIA that I was talking about earlier, Chair Tony Louis said he's already seen businesses drop off dramatically due to coronavirus fears, and that's a quote that came from January. So they, so Chinatown was feeling the effects of the pandemic before it had ever seriously reached Toronto. I have an article here uh, about Furama Cake and Desserts Garden located on Spadina Avenue just south of Dundas. Uh, was in business for 30 years. Um, that's one of our businesses that had to close. A cool thing that we can juxtapose here is how Little Jamaica and Chinatown have both been affected is that Chinatown has its own dedicated BIA. And I was on their Facebook page and they're doing so many cool things to help bring attention and help out their small businesses. So right now they're doing something called Thinking Outside the Big Box, which is asking customers and people to buy non-essentials for the holidays from small business. What you're talking about from Little Italy, people like to rally around these businesses. Definitely. I saw some of these signs that I saw said, I've been in business for 40 years, 30 years, 20, 18 years. I employ every single one of these, said one to zero people. And I employed 27, 5, 10, 18 before the pandemic. This is a serious thing that the pandemic has caused. This is a serious cost, loss of jobs. But it's amazing that the BIA, the Chinatown BIA, is helping out their neighborhoods and bringing attention to it and encourage people to go out to these shops to buy their holiday gifts and all of that. When we think about the BIA yeah. and what they're doing, you also have to think about what is the larger government doing? What are we doing for rent freezing? How are people helping out? How are they making rent? I just read a story of a woman uh, in Chinatown who had her landlord refuse to uh, apply to the Can Canadian Emergency Commercial Rent Assistant because they didn't want to. And the landlord made her f pay full rent even though her business had been closed for three months. This woman's name is Jin Lee, and she's owned a Chinese arts and crafts store for 15 years. But in September, they had to shut its doors permanently. While this isn't a restaurant, I think it's important to talk about these kind of things. Definitely. So the CECRA uh, subsidy covers half of the rent for up to four months, leaving the remaining 50% to be split between the tenant and the landlord. Of course, if your landlord doesn't do anything about it, what can you do? Take them to a claims court? You probably don't have the money to take them to court. And you can't go into court right now, so. <laughs> you'd you have to Zoom court it. You'd have to Zoom court it. Oh. This is all to say Little Jamaica, Chinatown seriously suffered. Yes, we're seeing people adapt and pivot and change, 
much, but I think that these are two neighborhoods that are so culturally rich and important to Toronto that have not gotten the support that they need. And I think we're going to lose a serious amount of history and culture. And that's what I have to tell you about Chinatown and Little Jamaica. Oh, and thank you for telling us. The context is important to the research question because it does come down to community impact. Racialized parts of the city have been facing in general and now with COVID, the additional impacts that brings. Yeah, with that, I think we can pass you off to Lexi and Leah and their two neighborhoods. Let's do it. Thanks so much for listening to this first episode of Rise in a Research Podcast presents T. Dot Restoratory. Oh, I'm singing.